We're going to open the scriptures this week uh, to John chapter 11 as we continue in our series on God and the pandemic. We're trying to think deeply and hope realistically during this time of pain and suffering. And it's no secret that life is hard in 2020 during this pandemic, but it's especially hard when we have to face issues of death. Uh, Some in our own congregation have had to navigate a funeral during the midst of this pandemic. And who of us has not had their heart broken at news of a loved one who was not able to be with their loved ones during uh, their passage through death? And part of us experiences this kind of news and this kind of time as deeply saddening. But when we hear of someone dying alone, if we're honest... That's deeply infuriating. There's something within us that says, this is not the way things are supposed to be. I don't know if you wrestled with those kind of questions, those kind of desires, for those those moments where we ask, where are you, God? Why didn't you do something? Couldn't things have been different? But if you have wrestled with those questions, you're not alone. We all need to wrestle at some level with those kind of questions because even if we're not asking them, others, both within our church and outside of the church, are asking these kind of questions. And so when those kind of questions are asked, how would you respond? What what would you say? What could you say when someone says to you, where is God in the midst of this? Why didn't he do something? There's a scene in the recent film, Selma, in which Mr. Cager Lee is at a morgue looking at the body of his grandson. Jimmy Lee Jackson had been marching in a peaceful protest in Selma, and he was shot twice in the stomach by an Alabama state trooper. And in this moment of weightiness, as he mourns the loss of his grandson, Dr. Martin Luther King comes to speak with him. And he meets him there and takes a moment as he he grabs hold of his hands and, and looks at the body of Jimmy Lee. And Dr. King says this, there are no words to soothe you, Mr. Lee. There are no words. But I can tell you one thing for certain. God was the first to cry. He was the first to cry for your boy. Cager Lee responded by saying, yes, I believe that. I wonder what you think about those words from Dr. King, that God was the first to cry for your boy. They they sound good, don't they? It sounds like something that, that could be said in a moment like this. But here's the question. How do we know? How do we know that God would grieve over the death of a person? I want to invite us today to look at a time in the life of Jesus in which he approached the death of one of his loved ones with both grief and rage. And in this passage, we're going to to see how we know that God would weep with us as we experience death, as we see loved ones going through that place of death. And it's going to transform not only our image of who God is, but it's going to help us to understand and reframe and rethink how we think of death itself as we see Jesus approaching the tomb of one of his friends. And so we're going to call our study today, When Jesus Wept. 
We're going to look at a lengthy passage in John chapter 11. And so if you have a copy of the scriptures and want to turn there, uh, go for it. We're going to have it on the screen behind me as well. And let me just say, if you know this event, if you know this episode in the life of Jesus, I want you to pretend like you don't know. Look at it with fresh eyes as we walk through and try to imagine the emotion that people are feeling, the questions that would arise in people's minds as they try to figure out what is going on. And even as we see those closest to Jesus wrestle with this moment of grief and profound sorrow and wonder what Jesus is doing, I want us to find ourselves walking this journey with them. So I want to invite you to journey back in time with me to this moment when someone that Jesus loved and loved deeply died. John chapter 11, verse 1. This is what the biographer of Jesus said. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and his sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, Lord, he whom you love is ill. This is a moment that many of us have faced. A moment of of sickness, of illness, of disease. We're not told here exactly what's going on. We read this and we, we tend to just write this off as not being that big of a deal. But in that day, they didn't have some ibuprofen they could pop in their mouth and knock down a fever. When someone became ill, people just prayed, crossed their fingers, hoped for the best. And maybe there's an analogy with us today, like when we hear of someone who gets the coronavirus. We know that a lot of people recover from this, but we know a lot of people don't. And so we hope for the best. We pray. And so in these opening verses, we're told in just as many verses, three times, that there's an illness. And so the sisters, knowing Jesus loves Lazarus, just sent a message to him and said, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. This is an interesting response from Jesus. And we're not told how those messengers interpreted this or or how they thought they would communicate this back to the sisters. But here Jesus is doing what he typically does and alerting us to something going on larger behind the scenes. Yes, there's an illness. Yes, it's scary. But Jesus says, God is at work. And we're told in verse 5 these words. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he... And before we read the next part of that verse, what would you think we would be told that Jesus did? Messengers from two sisters that he loves sends a message telling him that Lazarus, whom he loves, is ill. So when Jesus heard that Lazarus was ill, this family that he loves, what would you think he would do? I would think he would just drop everything in that moment and hurry off to be with them. No doubt they were hoping that Jesus could do something about it. And so we're told that when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, if you're scratching your head, thinking, wait a minute, I don't get what's going on. 
That's probably exactly what the sisters of Lazarus felt. Where is Jesus? Why is he not here? What could be possibly more important than him arriving at this moment and being here with us and maybe doing something about it? Verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So this was evidently a well-known family because many of the Jews who lived in Jerusalem made the the two-mile journey to be with them while they mourned. Verse 20, so... When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. So Jesus finally arrives. Martha rushes out to meet with Jesus. But Mary remains seated in the house. Now we're not told why she remained seated. We're just told that she was seated. She remained there. And we're kind of left to wonder why. Maybe she wasn't feeling good herself. Maybe she was weak with sorrow. Maybe she hadn't been sleeping well. Or maybe she's mad at Jesus. I don't know. We're not told. I think that maybe since they sent a message to Jesus saying, come, Lazarus is ill, and he doesn't come, maybe, maybe she's a little bit peeved with him. I don't know. That would be reading too much in to say definitively. The biographer of Jesus just tells us that she didn't get up to go see Jesus when Jesus finally showed up. Verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. This is a statement that is once filled with grief and also filled with faith. No doubt Martha had seen Jesus perform miracles No doubt she had seen him or heard that he had given sight to the blind, that he had healed people who had been crippled from birth, that he even brought back some people from the dead. And so saying that if he had been here, Lazarus would not have died is a statement of bold faith. Jesus, you could have done something. You have the power. You're anointed by God. Whenever you show up, bad things go in reverse. The curse is pushed back and and the way things are supposed to be actually happens. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now those of us who know the story think we know what she's asking here. And I don't think she's asking that. I think she's saying something like this. Even now that Lazarus has died... And you could have done something about that. But even now, whatever you ask from God, he will give to you. I think she probably has in mind something like asking that Lazarus would be welcomed into the kingdom of God. Maybe. But she says in the midst of her grief, in the midst of her questions, in the midst of her sorrow. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. In verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. 
Now here's Jesus, the rabbi, speaking with Martha. Who had, they both knew the story of the scriptures. They both knew the Hebrew scriptures taught about this good creation that went bad. And they both knew that the prophets spoke about a day when the Messiah would come and set everything to right, when everything would be restored, when life would be the way it's supposed to be. This is the hope of the kingdom of God that Jesus himself spent so much time talking about. And so when she said to him, I know that he will rise again at the resurrection on the last day, she's saying something very orthodox, something every Jewish person living in Israel at the time would have believed. There is a coming day when God will reverse this cursed world we live on. When those who have died in faith will be raised again and restored in the kingdom of God. She knows that. She knows that's what God is going to do. So when Jesus says he will rise again, she says, I know he will rise again at the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he sh- shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Those of us who have read the Gospels and have maybe heard this teaching of Jesus before can sometimes miss the impact that this might have had on anyone who would have heard it. For Jesus to say, I am that resurrection, that day that you hope for in which God will set this world to right and restore all things at the resurrection, I am the resurrection. What a powerful statement. Only God can bring about that resurrection on the last day. And yet Jesus is saying, I am the resurrection. But he also tells her, I am the life. I am the life of that kingdom. I am eternal life. What a bold statement for him to say. God is the author of life. God is the one who can grant eternal life. And here Jesus is saying, I am the resurrection. I am life. Do you believe this? Jesus asked her. Verse 27. She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. This is a statement of faith. We're not told by John if she said this kind of matter of factly, like she's checking a Sunday school answer, or whether she was buoyed by this understanding. We're just not told. She simply says, Yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ. You're the son of God. You're the one who's coming into the world. This is a statement of belief, but she still has a dead brother. Verse 28. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. For whatever reason, Mary had stayed back and not went out to talk to Jesus. Now she's ready. Verse 30, now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to weep. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, 
Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. These are the exact same words that her sister Martha had said to Jesus. Which leads me to believe they probably said this over and over again in the wake of the death of Lazarus. If only Jesus had been here, he wouldn't have died. So she comes before Jesus, falls on her face at his feet, weeping, eking out these words in sorrow, in grief, at what could have been if only Jesus had come. But what's interesting, even though she says the same words that Martha said, Jesus doesn't respond the same way. He doesn't give her a hook, a statement to sink her teeth into. He doesn't say to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Instead, we're told in verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. I don't know what comes into your mind when you hear the word weeping. I was talking with my wife yesterday about the connotations this has in English. I tend to think of someone kind of quietly crying, maybe keeping to themselves, trying to to stop. She told me that weeping is synonymous with crying. It it can be ugly crying or something like that. Uh, There's an elasticity to that word. But in Greek, the word carries much stronger connotations. This isn't someone just quietly weeping, washing away tears. The best translation for it would be wailing. Loud groans coming from the core of her being. When Jesus saw her wailing and the Jews who had come with her also wailing, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. This word deeply moved is is a tame English translation. It really means moved with indignation. Jesus is angry. Greatly troubled. can be translated, he, he troubled himself greatly. He allowed himself to be greatly troubled. In other words, Jesus in this moment where everyone is wailing around him allows himself to be moved with deep anguish and enters into this moment of weeping. Jesus said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus is experiencing deep emotion in this moment. He's seeing the brokenness of of Martha and Mary and all these people wailing because death has been victorious. Death has robbed them. And so he says, show me where he's laying. And they said, come, Lord, and see. So in our minds, imagine them going to the tomb where Lazarus has been for four days. And we're told in the very next verse, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. It's that same idea. We We need to see Jesus standing at the tomb of Lazarus bursting into tears. He allows himself to be affected by this moment of grief and sorrow. And I don't know about you, but I'm so thankful this verse is here. 
I remember growing up watching every Easter on the three channels we had on TV, there would be this, this film called Jesus of Nazareth. I don't know if you've seen it or not, but it presents Jesus as a very stoic person. You know, even when he's crucified, it's like it doesn't even affect him. He doesn't smile, he doesn't laugh, he doesn't cry. And I grew up with that image of a stoic Jesus who didn't feel anything. But the scriptures tell us that Jesus felt deeply. That Jesus wept. And I don't know about you, but I need that sometimes in my life. I need to know that Jesus wept at the same kind of things that I weep about. So Jesus burst into tears. Why? Because grief is entirely and it's an entirely appropriate response in the wake of death. It is. Even though death is normal, it's not the way it's supposed to be. Even though it happens all the time, every day, around the world, it's ordinary. But it's not the way it's supposed to be. And so Jesus, in weeping in this moment, gives us permission to weep in those moments as well. There's something fundamentally broken and messed up about this world. Death is seen as an intruder of God's good creation. Jesus teaches us to view, that, to view death as the enemy. The enemy of creation. Your enemy. And as we said before, and we'll say again, this quote from H.B. Charles, for the record, there is nothing spiritual about acting as if life does not hurt when life hurts. In this moment at the tomb, life hurts. Jesus allows himself to feel the sorrow and the grief of life hurting those he loves. And so Jesus grieves deeply for those who suffer grief. Jesus suffers deeply for those who suffer grief. Now, my friends, in, in seeing this episode where Jesus weeps, we're not meant to just say, oh, he was a deeply empathetic guy. I mean, no doubt he was. I think he was probably the most empathetic person who's ever walked this planet. But I think we're meant to see something else, something that philosopher Peter Kreft from the University of Notre Dame once said. Jesus is the tears of God. He has come to earth to taste our sadness. He enters into this moment of grief. And if we believe what the scriptures lead us to believe, that Jesus is God himself in the flesh, God himself in the flesh weeps at the tomb of Lazarus. As Isaiah said, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. In fact, we just sung this a few moments ago. He took our sin and our sorrow, and he made them his very own. These beautiful verses, Jesus wept, are meant to enable you to deeply identify with this man of sorrow, to see that he deeply identifies with us. I love what Tim Keller said in his booklet, The Grieving Sisters. He said, here you have deity, that is God, joined to human vulnerability. His love pulls him down into weeping. Despite his claim that he is the resurrection and the life, that he is God, he responds to Mary this way because he is fully human as well. He is one of us. He feels the horrific power of death 
and the grief of love lost. And so, that's why we're told in other places that we are called to weep with those who weep. Jesus himself wept with those who wept. And let me just say this. I know, I don't want to put this. Some of us, I grew up stuffing my emotions. I grew up fearing that a loved one of mine would die and I would not cry at their funeral. I don't like what grief does to me. I don't like how it feels like I'm out of control. And so some of us have become masters at beating down those emotions of deep sorrow and grief. Some of us refuse to cry. My friends, what I want you to see, hopefully, from this, you can't be more spiritual than Jesus. And if your humanity is broken in such a way that you can't cry, that's something that we need to work on. That's something you need to be freed from. Because it's entirely appropriate to weep sometimes. It's entirely appropriate to weep with those who weep. Now, I asked you at the beginning of our time together, if you know the rest of this story, to pretend like you don't know it. I want you to recall the rest of the story for just a moment. Jesus is weeping, even though he knows in just a moment what he's about to do. He knows that in just a matter of moments, everyone is going to be blown away and amazed and worshiping God. But Jesus takes this moment to grieve and to weep. Verse 36, so the Jews said, see how he loved him. They look at the the grieving Jesus and said, see how he loved Lazarus. But some of them said, said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? I don't know about you, but I'm so glad these two verses are here back to back. We know Jesus loves us and loves us deeply. That's part of the good news of the gospel. But sometimes we're scratching our head when we ask for a healing and it doesn't come. When we pray for a loved one whose whose son or daughter is on death's door and Jesus doesn't do anything. And we wrestle with these questions. If, If he did it then, why couldn't he do it now? I've heard of miracles happening in other places. Where is our miracle? See how he loved him. Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have also kept this man from dying? My friends, be glad that those two verses are back to back for you to root the reality of your existence into. But that's not all that happens. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. There's that phrase again. He was deeply moved. And what we need to know is this word sometimes is often used. uh, For example, a horse in battle that is snorting with anger. Or or a, a wild beast like a lion roaring with rage on the attack. Jesus is deeply moved. So we need to see him approaching this tomb, 
tears streaming down his face, deeply moved and angry of what's going on, and maybe saying through clenched teeth, take away the stone. Keller, once again, is helpful. He said, this verse contains a Greek word that means to bellow with anger. Jesus is absolutely furious. He's bellowing with rage. He's roaring. Jesus is raging against death. He doesn't say, look, just get used to it. Everybody dies. That's the way of the world. Resign yourself. No, he doesn't do that. Jesus is looking squarely at our greatest nightmare, the loss of life, the loss of loved ones and of love. And he's incensed. He's mad at evil and suffering. So Jesus, deeply moved, tears streaming down his face, says, take away the stone. I wonder what you would do if you were sitting there watching this. Jesus is, let's just put it this way, Jesus is making a scene. I don't know if you've been at funerals where people have said entirely inappropriate things, but I have. I've been at funerals where people have made it about themselves when it's not about them. Jesus is here making a scene, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus says, take away the stone, and Mary's trying to pull him back a little bit. Jesus, stop. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you? If you believed, you would see the glory of God. Jesus has, has perhaps made a turn here from rage to assuming his role as the one to whom God has given all power and authority. And so they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you have sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This had to be a crazy scene. Jesus is making a scene. They move the stone away. Martha is really uncomfortable with what Jesus is doing. Jesus issues the command and out walks this man who maybe looks like a mummy. He's wrapped in burial cloths. And Jesus says, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed him. But some of them went and told them what Jesus had done. I mean, can you imagine being there and seeing this miracle of Jesus, this miracle of miracles? And then the wonder and, and awe that might have inspired in you and the questions about who is this man? Wow, I've never seen anything like this. No doubt some people responded that way, put their trust in Jesus, believed him. But others went and told what Jesus had done. We're told in verse 47, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council, that is the Supreme Court of Israel, the Sanhedrin, and said, what are we to do? You have the most powerful religious people gathered together. 
in Israel on this spot, asking the question, what are we going to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Which, by the way, I just find that humorous. I don't know if you do or not. Yes, if someone can bring back someone who's been dead for four days, why not believe in him? I mean, that seems entirely appropriate. I mean, you listen to what he has to say. But if we go on like this, if he goes on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And we're told in verse 53, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. And this is bizarre. Jesus just brought back a man from the dead. They're livid. They can't control Jesus. Jesus is not including them in his plans. And so they make plans to put this man to death. We're told in in the Gospel of John, Jesus goes into hiding for just a, a moment, a few moments actually, as Passover is approaching. Jesus wants to enter Jerusalem on the day of, on, on the celebration of Passover. And he does. He enters at the beginning of the week riding on a donkey to the cheer of crowds. But by the end of the week, he was beaten and nailed to a cross. And in this moment, this man who had the power of life and death gives himself up, gives himself over to death. Keller, once again, is helpful. He says, the witnesses said about Jesus, see how he loved Lazarus. But really, we must behold now how he loves us. He became human, mortal, vulnerable, killable, all out of love for us. Jesus allowed himself, just like he allowed himself in the moment to enter into the grief of that situation where Lazarus was dead and his sisters were grieving and the the Jews were grieving, just like he allowed himself to enter into that moment, he allowed himself to be nailed to the cross where the rich and powerful thought they won. But in this moment, God laid upon him the sins of his people and made atonement for them. Just over a month later, Peter, who had deserted Jesus, who who fled when he was arrested because he thought that he would end up crucified as well, marched right back into Jerusalem, the place where they crucified him, and said, you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this, we are witnesses. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead, and we are eyewitnesses of this. Something happened in the death and resurrection of Jesus that began to weaken death's grip on this world. Some of you know the story of Narnia, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. There's this scene in which um, Edmund had allied himself with the white witch who cast a spell over Narnia where it was always winter and never Christmas. I mean, what a horrible phrase, right? And he actually betrayed his brothers and sisters and became the slave of this white witch. And Aslan, the great lion king, made a deal with the white witch that he would die in the place of Edmund if she would let Edmund go. And so Aslan allowed himself to be killed They sacrificed him on the stone table. And later when the children came looking for Aslan, they couldn't find him. 
He was gone. The, the table had been split and broken. And then Aslan arrives on the scene. And they're in, in marvel. They're, they're wondering what is going on here. And this is what he said. He said, though the white witch knew the deep magic, there is a deeper magic still which she did not know. That when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. My friends, this is exactly what happened in the crucifixion of Jesus. The righteous one died in the place of the unrighteous. And when he rose again from the dead, that tomb opened up and he went out. Death itself started working backwards. That's why Peter would say, God raised him up, loosening him from the pangs of death because it was impossible for death to keep its grip on him. He would go on and say, and now brothers, I know you acted in ignorance as did your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again that your sins may be blotted out and the times of refreshing may come from the, from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you whom heaven must receive for, uh, until the time for the restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his prophets long ago. Here Peter is telling those very people who crucified Jesus to turn, to repent. God would forgive. The times of refreshing would come. And God will send back the Messiah, the Christ, the Lord Jesus, whom heaven has received until the restoration of all things. And so my friends, Jesus says, I am the resurrection in the life. Whoever believes in me, Though he dies, yet he will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And I hope that we all say, like Cager Lee said, yes, I believe that. My friends, we don't have all of our questions answered. We don't know why God answers some prayers and not others. We don't know why sometimes pandemics break out and plagues break out. We got some answers, but not all the answers. But we have the answer for the one question we need to know. And that is, does God care? Does he weep? And Jesus says, yes. Jesus is the tears of God. Let me just uh, read to you this one quote from N.T. Wright following Jesus. I, I think this is really keen. He talks about Calvary, which is the place where they crucified Jesus. And he said, without Easter, Calvary was just another political execution of a failed messiah. Without Easter, the world is trapped between the shoulder shrug of the cynic, the fantasy of the escapist, and the tanks of the tyrant. Without Easter, there is no reason to suppose that good will triumph over evil, that love will win over hatred, that life will win over death. But with Easter, we have hope, because hope depends on love, and love has become human and has died and is now alive forevermore and holds the keys of death in Hades. It is because of him that we know. We don't just hope. We know that God will wipe away all tears from our eyes. And in that knowledge, we will find ourselves to be Sunday people called to live in a world of Fridays. My friends, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. If you believe, you will see the glory of God. And so let our hearts respond by saying, yes, Lord, I do believe. You are the resurrection and the life. And when we respond by faith that way, we can be confident 
that one day Jesus will say to death, unbind him, unbind her, let them go. Because on that last day, the, the day of the resurrection, the day in the restoration of all things, Jesus will say to death itself, unbind my creation, let it go. And it will be rebirth and resurrection freedom from here on. So my friends, trust in Jesus. Settle this issue today. Amidst all your questions, believe that Jesus loves you. Believe that Jesus weeps when you weep. And believe that Jesus died for you and will come back for you. That, my friends, is the hope of the gospel.